and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson, excited to have you with us today for another great episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a little bit about myself. So I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. My background is in both. So I went to school for sports psychology, and I went back to school again for executive coaching. And today I work with athletes, but I spend a lot of my time working with executives in the corporate world. In addition to that, I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we believe that labeling competencies like leadership, emotional intelligence, and teamwork as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. So, At Strong Skills, we facilitate conversations, we create experiences for companies to learn, to grow, we put on trainings, and we do one-on-one coaching. One of the strong skills that we teach is what we call Shift Your Mind. The teachings come from my book, which came out last year. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, I know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. I narrated it myself. So if you want more Brian in your ears, yes, I'm using the third person. If you want more of me in your ears, you can download the audiobook. Thanks to all of you who have already done so. And let's continue to spread the word about Shift Your Mind and introduce this framework to high performers and people that are trying and striving to be at their very best. Thank you all for your continued support with the book. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's episode or any of our previous conversations, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really does help us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest, Sean McGinnis wears many hats, and he's going to talk about his journey from South Africa to the United States in this conversation. But today he is the CEO of Capital 54, where he contributes 30 years of experience to entrepreneurs and growing professional service businesses domestically and all throughout the world. 
How does he help them? He helps them with growth strategies, turnarounds, acquisitions, and financing. Sean supports the Capital 54 portfolio company CEOs, the investment resourcing, screening, and due diligence. And he also is involved with all of their growth and exit processes. Prior to Capital 54, Sean led a global and diverse team, serving over 30,000 CEOs in 138 countries with combined annual revenues of $9 trillion, that's right, $9 trillion U.S. dollars. He was the president and the COO of YPO, which stands for Young Presidents Organization. You may be familiar with that organization. We had Scott Mordell on the podcast previously, and Scott is who introduced us to Sean. Prior to that, Sean began his business career in management at Dow Chemicals. He ran a professional services firm for 14 years, focused on organizational development, consulting, people assessment, and executive search, which grew to encompass operations in Canada, the U.S., and Mexico, where he and his team served several thousand clients. He has experience with real estate platforms, electricity infrastructure development, and financial services. As I mentioned, Sean was the past president and COO of YPO, and he also is the past global president of EO, which stands for Entrepreneurs Organization. And today, he is still an active Young Presidents Organization member. So Sean believes in group learning, believes in personal growth and self-development, and so I knew he'd be a great person to have on the podcast. So without further ado, I'm so excited to present to you, Sean McGinnis. Sean, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. We got connected by Scott Mordell. Shout out to Scott. And we had a we had a great conversation. It was one of those conversations where maybe we should have just hit the record button then, but hopefully we'll be able to recreate the magic today. And where I wanted to start with you is as people are going to notice when you when you come on the mic here, you have an accent. And so tell me about your roots in South Africa and what life was like for you as a kid growing up uh, far away from where you are today. Brian, great to be with you. And again, a shout out from me too to Scott. I had the privilege of working with Scott for close to seven and a half years and a finer gentleman and human being uh, have a just a tremendous amount of personal respect. And we we did so much together that I, I value and that kind of informed a large part of my working life. So huge shout out to Scott. Yes, South African. I had the privilege of being born in Johannesburg, one of three children. A distinction that I have is my mother was one of nine, of 10 daughters. She was the third youngest of 10. My grandmother had 10 girls, uh, all during the period of the Second World War, leading up to the Second World War. And Sean, were those were those aunts present in your life? Yes, every aunt was present in my life. I had a personal relationship with each of them and their husbands and obviously my cousins. So very blessed to have that family nucleus as a... Um, as an elemental part of, of growing up, it was very profound. And are the cousins all over the world now or where are they? Yeah, the cousins and the cousins' kids. Most of the cousins are still in South Africa. Several have made the, the leap further afield. There was a big migration of people in the 70s and 80s. But a lot of their children, my cousins' children, have now, as the world has become accessible to everybody, those with the means and the desire, uh, basically spread, you know, the diaspora has grown, as they say. Uh, but yeah, it was a wonderful time uh, growing up. Unfortunately, it was layered with the the very negative element of apartheid while I was growing up. And um, that also informed a lot of insights and um, 
who I am, I guess, and uh, the country's in a much better place now from a political standpoint, but it just hasn't redressed, addressed the, or redressed the inequalities that existed. If you travel the world, and I've had the privilege of traveling to, gosh, at least 120 countries, I think, maybe more, um, you know, and you see the discrepancies. We're very privileged and blessed to live in the United States, Brian. I, I, I thank the good Lord every day for that privilege because there are parts of the world one can live in that are not easy uh, just, to, just to survive. And South Africa and Africa in general has its, has its challenges, but it also has massive opportunity. You mentioned thanking the good Lord. Were, was religion a part of your upbringing? Yes. Um, my, my mother brought um, my brother and sister and I up uh, Catholic. And uh, that was the backbone of, um, you know, how we, how we got brought up. And um, that still informs a lot of my values and how I like to interact and, and what I aspire to do today. Yes. And is Catholicism still something you practice regularly? Yes. And talk about how you've evolved from a young boy in South Africa to the U.S. as far as how you think about spirituality, if you do at all, think differently or the same. Um, and you also said something that, that resonated with me. You said a lot of my upbringing helped shape how I see the world. Uh, talk about racism and talk about apartheid and some of the things you might have witnessed and how it shapes uh, how you interact with the world from a humanity standpoint. Yeah, I mean, those are profound questions, right? And we could probably go for, you know, for hours and hours on that. I One of the one of the big lessons, I think, growing up in the developing world um, is you can't escape the realities of rich versus poor, educated versus uneducated, literate versus illiterate. And so when I come at things, I try and come at, at, at it from one, initially a respect, respect, one, gratitude for my own part, my own privilege in that, because not a lot of people think about their own privilege. Um, and so putting yourself in somebody else's shoes was a large part of growing up. I, I also had the benefit, and at the time I didn't think it was a benefit, I was distraught and maybe, you know, some PS, PST. Um, PTSD. Uh, PTSD, maybe some PTSD. I went to boarding school um, at seven years old. Um, my parents had uh, had a divorce and I, I got to go to boarding school because it was an easier way for, it was fairly typical for some families to send their kids to boarding school, but that's a very young age. I wouldn't have sent my daughter to boarding school at that age. I don't knock my parents because it was a, a way to protect and safeguard the kids as they were going through their separation. But, you know, that also informed how I, you had to become a team player very early on. And when you look at the tribal influences in South Africa and the um, locally born South Africans that are born into a culture with histories, and a lot of the histories are verbal, a lot of them weren't recorded and written down, but there are centuries worth of these histories. And being exposed to that at a, at a young age in a very positive way, because the the school that I went to was a um, Christian-based school, although it was interdenominational. That you know, it was, it was, but their underpinnings were a Judeo-Christian sort of worldview, where you know you look after your neighbor, you do the right thing, the golden rule, you know, treat others as you would treat yourself. And so, even growing 
up under this patina of apartheid, the lessons that we were being taught, literally drummed into us almost militaristically, was you get ahead by helping other people. You learn the lessons of not doing that. You learn the lessons of being a loner and being isolated because you can't function um, in a society or in a small ecosystem like a boarding school unless you're prepared to get along, do your part, step up. Um, and not that you don't are not encouraged to challenge. You're not just encouraged to toe the line. Yes, there's certain rules and regulations and you know that, that's important. But to really get ahead, you've got to evidence to other people that you can be trusted to have their back, that you can be trusted to make your bed in the morning, to brush your teeth, to you know, shine your boots, to go out and clean up the grounds and, and take care of the environment by picking up garbage and all of those things. So I, I don't mean to, this to sound like apple pie because at times it was like, my God, you know, I could be lying in bed watching TV. Why am I up at four o'clock in the morning in the boot um, closet, cleaning my shoes and getting for, ready for a day? Um, and, but you know, when you look at things with hindsight, you look back, those experiences were very formative. I was also blessed. My parents had a, um, a housekeeper who was Zimbabwean. His name was Peter Ndlovu. And he was the most remarkable man, Brian. He, he had come to South Africa for work. He'd send every dollar that he made would go back to his family in Zimbabwe. And he was a higher up. He's like a minor chieftain in his tribe, came from a town called Plumtree near Bulawayo in Zimbabwe. And he was like second father to um, the three the three kids we idolized him so there was my dad my mom and obviously we loved them as mom and dad but then there was peter who was our kind of our confidant he was our rock he was the guy that kind of slept with us if we were sick he was the guy that you know would make sure that we were ready for school in the morning you know and we we loved him uh, you know unconditionally so you know, you had in South Africa, it's really weird. The, you have this deep ingrained affection for, for people uh, of different color, different race, different religions. And then you had this governmental structure which forced a particular worldview on you. So this is a long way and rambling way of saying coming out of that, a lot of people would have adopted a victim mentality. And a lot of people did. And it took people like Nelson Mandela and it took people like F.W. de Klerk and Bishop Tutu to sit down and say, okay, let's recognize the bad thing. Let's identify it. Let's say that that was wrong. But in order to move forward, how do we choose? What is the responsibility we take for our part in that? What's the outcome that we're going to create? And so when you look at the, you look at this beautiful thing that is now, they call it the rainbow nation, it's quite a miraculous um, experiment, I would call it, because it's not perfect. But this enshrining individual rights, for example, enshrining minority rights, um, recognizing that bad things happen and bad things get done, and then making sure that there are, you know, institutionalized rules and guidelines and protections. Now, all of that is great. However, there are dark forces that kind of attack that, right? There's corruption, there's self-dealing, there's bitterness. Some people are still trapped in victimhood. Some people are still trapped in, well, oh, woe is me. My life went away. I used to be the top dog just because of the color of my skin. And so they're in uh, denial, if you would. And if you look at that as a, as a 
um, as an overlay for everything in the world and we're getting fairly philosophical, but I call that cultural intelligence. And so I think I was very blessed to, to through experience and through exposure, um, develop a certain cultural intelligence and understand the value of, of different worldviews. Um, hey, Sean, Sean, yeah. so it's interesting when I hear cultural intelligence, I go to, well, what is American culture like? And mm -hmm. when I talk to people that are not from the U.S., they will often talk about the individualism that exists in our country, the drive, yeah. the ambition. You can do anything and be anything in America. And it's interesting because one of the first things you said was, I learned how to be a team player in South Africa. And mm -hmm. so I'm curious, you have this uh, upbringing where I learned how to be a team player, but you come to the U.S. and you are interested in business, entrepreneurship. Yeah. Uh, there's almost an individualistic nature that exists within our culture that can be good at times and can be bad at times. Can you talk Precisely. about the, the intersection of being a team player and also uh, an individual and focused on your own in individual contributions? Yeah, well, listen, I think the, I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a, a dichotomy there or, or, or a disconnect. I, being a team player simply for me recognizes the importance of people, individual striving, individual ambition, individual I love that because without that, you know, we'd be stuck as human beings. I mean, if we, without that individual passion to drive us, but recognizing that in order to fulfill your individual passions, ambitions, and goals, this is what I realized. I'm not going to put that on everybody, but you need people. You need people to give you a hand up. You need people to support you, to believe in you, to encourage you, to inspire you. I don't think there's one successful entrepreneur in the United States that could look you in the eye, Brian, and say, I didn't have help getting where I'm going. Now, they may not say it in those terms, but I hope they would. Like, I have a relationship with my grade three teacher. Her name is Sandy Sims. I love her dearly. We, we WhatsApp on a regular basis. I see her when I go back to South Africa. The reason that, for me, is such a critical, important relationship in my life is because she believed in me as a kid. And what did she do? What did she do to believe in you? You know what? She would she would interrupt bad behavior. For example, my best friend and I, Grant Treble, we, we we would we would pretend to be sick. We'd goof off. We would, and she'd say, "Guys, you're better than this. I believe that you're better than this. Come back to. I'm going to punish you, but you can do. You you are better than the behavior that you're exhibiting. And that just wasn't once. That was many times. She would she could share a story with you and she banished us. We would do it from boarding school. We would do these day trips down to the city and we were off to the aquarium. We couldn't sleep. We were so excited. And we messed up. We decided we weren't going to do a math test and fake an illness one morning. And she she said, You're not going. Here are the consequences of your behavior. Here's what I expect of you. This is what you're going to do to make it right. So we ended up spending the entire time. Everybody was at the aquarium with ice cream and you know, having a whale of the time. We were studying, we took the math test, and we had to we had to we had to get payback for the bad behavior. So that's one silly example, but I think it's illustrative. You know, Sean, what's coming up for me, uh, before we started recording, I sort of said to you, gosh, I've had an interesting day. Uh, so I had a mentor, uh, his name's Neil Stroll, and I, I learned today that he he just passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. And, and, but but it's actually um, fortuitous that we're having this conversation today because I know mentoring is a big part of what you care about and what you're involved with with all of your entities Very and, nice. I, 
I think about Neil and his ability to challenge people and support them while still believing in them and feeling like he believed in me, but he would still challenge me. Hey, Brian, what are the questions you have before our meeting? Hey, Brian, what are you going to do between now and our next meeting? Yes. Hey, Brian, here's three people I'm going to connect you to. Right. You, know, you better follow up. You better follow through. And Neil was speaking of culture. Neil was from Boston and had the intensity of a Bostonian. I love had- Bostonians. I've got a, a good friend, Greg Alexander, who's a Bostonian. I, I really respect that candor. Right, direct, right, right to you. But he also had this hippie side of him. He cared and he had the heart of a hippie and someone that just would wrap his arms around you and love you unconditionally. And so as I hear you talk about your third grade teacher, I think of the great teachers, the great mentors like Neil, like your teacher, who are able to challenge people and and support people. I know mentoring is a big part of what you do and how you do it. How do you think about challenging and supporting people as a mentor? I think it's critical. I I think having the objectivity and wearing an unbiased, to the extent we can, because we've all got just a gazillion biases that we bring, but as a mentor, being able to suspend your judgment, I would say, and this is a big lesson that I received, you know, through involvement in the concept called forum with EO and YPO, where you really are in a small group environment, you learn how to kind of take the masks off that you wear, the ego sort of goes away, you're vulnerable. And so to be able to suspend judgment in the moment without abdicating your responsibility to share from experience, A, an experience you had. Because in mentoring, it's not necessarily all about giving advice. It's, yes, I've been there, done that. I I know where the blind spots are. I can help you navigate. But I think the, the most powerful thing, whether it's coaching or mentoring, is literally taking as an objective position as you can, recognizing, I I like looking at two sides of the coin. On the one side is the light side, it's the positive aspect. On the other are the challenges, or you could call it the dark side. How do you as a mentor help the mentee navigate through that? And if you start from this non-judgmental, I'm not going to shoot on you, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I can share from experience, I can probe, with questions, you know, and and really, some of those questions can be really confronting, like in a lot of situations is, Brian, what do you really want in this particular situation? What do you see your options being? What might you be missing? And operating out of that, very tough for a lot of particularly entrepreneurs and executives to ask and to be vulnerable and to really probe on, you know, what's missing here? What could you choose to do differently to improve the situation or circumstance? And none of us are perfect. I often catch myself being triggered. And for me, and I'll be very blunt with you, I'm very a stickler for manners. I'm I'm very much a stickler for doing what you say you're going to do and for showing up in a way that is Um, non-detrimental to other people. However, some people see that as a weakness. I've had that feedback in 360s. You're too nice. You know, you take time to kind of get to the point you don't want to upset the apple cart. When When I have gotten into trouble, it's when I've waited too long to address a particular issue. And I'm much better at it today. It still triggers me, but I'm aware of the trigger. And I've learned how to confront that, um, at least I think I've learned to confront that, 
um, in a positive way. And I think for me, it starts with values. It starts from understanding where I come from, what I really want in a, in a situation and being clear in sharing that with others. So there's no gray in the, in the understanding. And I'm not going to stop being, you know, the person that I am um, because I like the person that I am. Sean, you yeah, yeah. You mentioned values. Uh, why entrepreneurship? What, why have you gone this path and this route? What is it about it that aligns with what you value? You know, entrepreneurship and business, I think, is what makes the world go round. Um, I've experienced it. I've spent a lot of time interacting with entrepreneurs who create ideas, businesses, jobs. Um, it is the most remarkable skill set for somebody to have an idea, to get it funded, friends, family, scrap, sell, um, and literally create an ecosystem that never existed before. You what are, what, Sean, what are, the, what are the skills? What do you said a skill set? What do you think the skills are that are needed to do that? I think it's belief in yourself, obviously belief in your idea, grit and determination, finishing what you start. There are a lot of people that have tried the entrepreneurial route and have given up. And then somebody takes their idea and boy, it comes a huge success. Um, so grit, determination, passion, surrounding yourself with smarter people than you are. Because again, going back to teamwork, my experience has been that you may have the best idea in the world. You may be the best developer, designer, et cetera. But in order to get it sold, in order to get it packaged, in order to get it out there, you need people. So that ability to surround yourself with people and share in the spoils. I've seen very su successful entrepreneurs who haven't shared in the spoils and they're unhappy people. That's a broad generalization, but I know a lot of them and it's, an, it's unfortunate. Mentorship. One of the things that came across in our call before we started recording was that you mentor three entrepreneurs every Saturday. Yes. Uh, you spend time with those people. What does that look like? Walk me through what that process looks like and, and why you do it. Yeah, so, you know, all of them are on a, this is pro bono work. I do it because I get a lot of enjoyment out of it. So I use, YPO has this amazing mentoring model. And a friend of mine, um, uh, she's an amazing, actually a South African, um, her name's Catherine, and she has this kind of little thing called the Catherine Wheel. And basically it's, it's a methodology to basically have conversations that draw out the um, circumstances or issues that these young entrepreneurs need help on. So one weekend, it could be, hey, you know, I'm, I'm in a capital raise mode. I've got three term sheets. You know, what do you think about these? And, and my role in those is to take from my experience, to ask them some questions, just make sure that they get, you know, a feel and they can go back to their attorney and say, hey, did we ask these questions? You know, the culture, the fit, the types of people. I deal with a lot of human resource type things with these folk is how do you have difficult conversations with people that you work with that may be not performing that well? Are you looking at yourself in the mirror? Are you taking care of yourself? So a lot of it is around preparing you mentally and your mindset for going into the fray every week um, and making sure that you're, you know, you're supported, you feel supported, whatever you're thinking, there's a you know, there may be a, a counterpoint or there may be a different way to think about something. But those, they're very free form. So we do, we do a classic update. How are you doing? How was your week? Best, worst? I've got a little, you know, cheat sheet. They also ask me because part of mentoring is I get a tremendous growth 
from mentoring. I don't know a lot of these industries. I've got um, a young man that I'm spending time with who's brilliant, and he's insuring uh, collectibles, very expensive watches and paintings, and he's a quasi carries a quasi insurance um, component. And I I love his business and the business model. And I'm going, man, where was I when this business model was invented? Because it's all new. It's it's so I I get as much out of it I think as hopefully as they. You t- you said something that I'm I'm chewing on in my mind, which is. I use my experience to ask more questions. When I think of a mentor, I usually am seeking answers. So I'll, I'll go to a mentor and say, Hey, I want you, you've walked in some of the places that I want to walk in. What are some of the, the answers you got for me? Um, but it sounds like you take a different approach. Walk me through how you think about using your experience to ask great questions. That's such a great question, Brian. Often I have the answer or I'm very close to knowing the answer. And that may come out during the course of the conversation, but asking provocative questions to really align the invitation. Here's part of the problem I I have faced, is if you give the answer, it makes it easy. And is that, does the answer help with the learning? So let's talk about, you know, a business divorce, for example. I recently had a situation where counseling somebody on a breakup, um, in a partner breakup. Now I'm not an attorney and I, Fully say this is this is not legal advice I'm giving you. This is practical advice because I had a, a partnership that didn't go well back in my early career, and it could have been handled a lot better had we had you know uh, somebody a third party helping us negotiate the the terms of the of the of the breakup. And so knowing that I could have just said, "Here's your solution: do X, Y, and Z." How valuable do you think that would be to the receiver if I started out by, again, are you prepared to break this up and ask a couple of provocative questions that really get to the nub of, for me, it's understanding what am I dealing with and what advice is going to be the most valuable? Is the advice, he doesn't really want to break up and this is just, you know, miscommunication and they really want a fighting chance to get together and there's too many variables that could upset the apple cart. Getting to that then informs me and that gives me an opportunity to share my experience in an appropriate way. Because I may, be, I may not be giving them the best advice. All I can do is give them an example. And that's usually what I do most. And I was taught this in forum. Advice is cheap. Opinion is just that, opinion. If I don't have an experience that's directly related to it, and I will share that experience at the appropriate time with the individual, then I'm very leery of sharing it because I don't want to be, I don't want to unduly influence the person's own decision-making. Make sense? Absolutely. You mentioned partnership and helping someone through a partner divorce. You you also mentioned Greg Alexander earlier, having Boston roots. What do you think are the keys to a great partnership? I think trust is essential. I think regular regular communication, being in communication with each other. And by the way, understanding right from the beginning that everybody's a choice in their relationships. And what I mean by that is no relationship works unless both parties choose to be in that relationship. A healthy relationship and a healthy divorce is when you both agree that this isn't working. And you have that discussion in a very factual, polite, good way. And then 
you celebrate, and this is strange to say this, but you actually want the best for the other person. You know, it's, it's a classic in negotiation. You go into a negotiation just wanting to win and get the best out of the individual. The top negotiators, you know, Harvard, go anywhere in the world will tell you that operating out of scarcity in a negotiation is not going to be the best outcome. And there have been many, many different scenarios run real time on this. So in a partnership, it's recognizing that nothing is forever, that there may come a point in time where, you know, it's in the best interest of both to go their separate ways. But having the guts to have that conversation in a non-emotional way, and it's difficult, this is tough stuff. But if you've got that relationship up front, very powerful, and you can clearly create breakthroughs as a result. And I think coaches are so important in that mix and leveraging people and mentors to help you through and look at the pros and cons, you know, also very important. You mentioned EO earlier. So for those that don't know, EO stands for Entrepreneurs Entrepreneurs Organization. Did I say that? Yes, Entrepreneurs Organization. And then YPO, so people know acronyms, Young Presidents Organization. Correct. So we'll, we'll, we'll talk about those, but it's interesting because EO is where you met your wife. So yes. I would imagine that that holds a special place in your heart. And then YPO, you mentioned working alongside Scott for seven years, um, also a big part of your life. Yes. Talk about both of those organizations and, and how they've impacted and influenced beyond the forum, which I think you've done a good job sort of describing yeah. how those get set up, the communication elements, but why get involved with EO? Why get involved with YPO? Even in the beginning, like why join those types of organizations? Yeah, and I'd never been a volunteer. I'd never joined an organization before. And when I met Peter Thomas, who was the founder of Century 21 in Canada, um, and he introduced me to the opportunity to join EO, I joined as a founding member of the Toronto chapter. And um, he basically shared his experience in YPO. Back in those days, it was called YEO. And YPOs were going around the world and starting uh, chapters on behalf of EO because they felt that it would be a great incubator, almost sort of an accelerator group and for younger people. And when one day they, they would join YPO. But when Peter sat down and said, you know what I've received out of it? I've gotten to meet the most extraordinary people that I would never have met either, either in business or personally from different walks of life. I've learned so much from them. And this is accessible and available to you. And I went, aha, the light bulb went off. You know, I could, I could literally as a new immigrant to Canada, I could meet a whole bunch of like-minded people because what's in common is you're entrepreneurs, you're building a business, you've got all those struggles, it's lonely. You can have a bunch of people that you could interact with on a monthly basis. You could learn from other people because there's a whole you know, set of things, speakers and resources, and you can do trips together. And I dove too thin. And what I didn't realize was the model is a volunteer-run model. So. I paid my $1,800 and Peter cashed the check and sent it off to EO. And they said, okay, the five of you, you're going to be the, the learning chair. You're going to be the chapter chair. You're going to be the treasurer. You're going to be responsible for membership. And I was like, I'm just paid $1,800 to create my own experience. But it was remarkable. And I was so enthralled with it. I got two feet in. Um, you know, my brother, who was my business partner at the time, was like, why are you spending so much time in EO? And I said, because I'm learning so much. I'm Every week, you know, every time I'm meeting with these people, I'm learning a little bit about how they're running their lives. And then it became less about business and more about the whole person. 
And so when I, you know, I spent 16 years in EO, I volunteered, I met my wife, as you said, I was on the international board, I became global chairman, I helped build it up to 5,000 people in my, in my year as chair. And then I had the opportunity, my business qualified for YPO. And for me, it was a natural progression. I needed more complexity and nuance from business coaching and mentoring, but I had been birthed, if you would, in this extraordinary, I, I will love EO till the day I die, because it's, it gave me so much in so many areas of my life. And then YPO took it to another level, you know, 30,000 CEOs around the world, also extraordinary people who are about learning, even the ones that are most fixed in their worldviews or in their point of view, or they're there because at some level, they want to improve. They want to be better husbands, better wives, uh, better leaders. Um, they want to improve their businesses. They they have this curiosity. And I think maybe that's it, Brian. What attracted me was this group of people that were innately in their DNA, curious, and they weren't know-it-alls, overarchingly. I just recorded an entire podcast by myself. I think I went for 40 minutes talking about curiosity. Really? And yeah. The more that I interact with the world, the more that I think that the key to a lot of elements of life is, is curiosity. I just don't know how we can learn without curiosity. Yes. And, and as I study people, whether it's Da Vinci or Kobe or Steve Jobs or Serena Williams or Beyonce, like there is this insatiable curiosity that goes across all of them. And it's why I fired up this podcast. And I, I, I might have to do a, a research project on this, I would guess, look, the podcast is called Intentional Performers for a reason. Intention is a word that I noticed early on when yes. I started this podcast that people are saying I intentionally do this or I intentionally do that. But I would guess that the single word that I hear most often when I interview people is the value of curiosity. Where did your curiosity get birthed? Where did it develop? Where did it come from? I'd love to just learn from you about how you think about curiosity for yourself. So I blame my mother. In fact, that's the wrong word. I, I, give, I give all my gratitude to her. My mother, you know, did not finish high school during her high school period. She was 16 when she had to leave home and go to work. She, she studied to be a bookkeeper. She finally got her GED. She put my dad through college. She was this extraordinary impact, uh, <coughs> excuse me, in my life. And she was a voracious reader. So she had books and she would just, thank God we didn't have TV until I was 12 because I look at kids today and all these devices and all of this bombarding you know, of data and information. We never had that. So we would sit down and you know, we would read books. And I became this, I became a reading addict. And you know, my mom saw that and she would just, I a book. Hey, try that. Try that. And I would read above my grade level. And then I'd read, you know, I was reading, you know, I, and I, re I read across a broad spectrum from, you know, fiction to nonfiction to fantasy to you name it. Um, and that literally instilled in me from a bit. And she would read to us. Um, and I think a lot of that is lost today. You know, you look at a lot of studies around how kids sort of develop because the brain is such a 
a beautiful thing and it's just ready for information. It's just crying out for it. And the more you give it, the more it sort of grows and develops. And there are incredible studies around this field. But she was the one that, that stimulated that and that hasn't finished. I mean, I, I don't read as much as I'd like to because you know, you've, you've got trade-offs in your work and you've got different things, but I business read all the time. Before I go to bed, I catch up on the news and um, I, read, I read not sensational news, I read for learning. Um, and that stayed with me my whole life. So any of your listeners, if you can inspire a child to read, um, and to because it just blows your mind as to what's available. Um, and the spoken, the written word is, and the way sentence structures work, and the, the, the you know, anyway, I'm getting too philosophical, but that's where it started. It's interesting because I think about my life, and I've got kids now, and I'm doing my best to develop them. I did not like reading. And I, yeah. I, I don't think I enjoyed reading until I was in grad school, honestly. Um, I mean, I would, I, I would ask girls, I'm like, all right, what was this book about? <laughs> and, <laughs> and like, I paid the consequence. Some of my grades were not as strong because I did not like to read. And, and so I've thought about this in that every human being is born with curiosity. Yes. If you've ever been around a five-year-old, they ask a zillion questions. Insatiable curiosity, right? We have it. Yeah. Yet something happens in our schooling where we shut that off or we shut that down through the system of going through school where you're supposed to know the answer. Correct. You're not necessarily supposed to get it wrong. And so we teach curiosity to be about right or wrong, A or B but we don't leave space to wonder. And I think that's where I struggled in school is I was wondering yes. and they weren't letting me wonder. They wanted me to just give the answer, get out, get in and, and you know, be, be gone. And grad school was the first time where I got to really wonder and, yes. and explore. And that's kind of wild to think like I could go through my whole education and, and not really enjoy reading, reading anything. Um, and, and so I have this, phrase that I've been working on, which is, can we return to curiosity? Because we have it. And to your point about technology, yes, now we're bombarded with information and we have long form podcasts. We have amazing documentaries about astronauts. Amazing. We have access to knowledge and wisdom and information that no generation has had access to. The internet provides such an, an even playing field for people to access information. Yet, because it's easy doesn't mean they're necessarily sitting with it. And when yeah. my kid asks me a question, I'm just going to Google it and give them the answer. Maybe there's a better answer that we haven't even discovered yet. Precisely. And, you know, it's that, it's that critical thinking. You know, I, my, my daughter's a, a Montessori kid. And now she's in a final year of high school in an international baccalaureate program. And what I love about the Montessori methodology, it's all about following your natural state of curiosity and giving you age appropriate and developmental appropriate tools and when you're ready to receive it. Some kids like, they like just unbelievable. They're reading a two and they're doing long B math calculations. Some take two or three years to get there, but they're really good at the tactile. They're really good at the emotional connection and watching that, you know, I, we weren't allowed to go into the school environment. They let us go once a week when she was like 18 months old and peer through this, you know, one-way glass. And 
I'd be like, what are they doing? You know, because I grew up in a very traditional, you sit at your desk, you learn your ABCs, you get your classes and you get slapped on that hand if you don't kind of- Yeah, Sean, right Sean, answer. all right, you, you've <laughs> owned that you are still a Catholic and you're talking about Montessori school. And look, I have amazing clients. There's somebody who's probably going to listen to this podcast. He listens to all the podcasts who is Catholic. I'm curious though, like I don't think of Catholicism as similar to Montessori school. Like I think well, those Maria are- Montessori was a very good Catholic. Ah, there you go. And under the, you know, here's what, here's why, what I love about, whether it's Catholicism, whether it's Judaism, the, the essence of those, <coughs> excuse me, religions is value and values and doing the right thing. So if you boil it down, if you, if you get, let's do away with the dogma and the tradition, the traditions are beautiful if they inform the intrinsic values. Like I was also very blessed by the way, as my godfather is a Jewish South African living in Houston and you know, who's at my baptism. And I have this most amazing relationship with him and with his family. And I love going to Shabbat at their home. I love the traditions of it, but you know what I love more? It's about family. It's about gratitude. It's about recognizing that you are one with, with humanity in a way that's very deeply spiritual and connected. And there's no difference when you boil it down to that level. I'm lit up right now. I got chills running up my spine. Like I'm lit up as you talk about it because I, 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 was, I was pushing you. I was challenging you. But I'll give you a little bit of what I believe. There's concern on my part that as our society does move away from traditional religion, that we maybe focus too much on American individualism, um, yeah. which I am a capitalist. I believe in, in you know, individualism, but yeah. it, anything that's unchecked becomes problematic. Yes. And religion, religion traditionally was our, our center. It was our center. It was our gathering place. It was how you could see yourself being part of a community and something bigger than yourself yes. and take God out, out of it for a second. But just what religion would do in tradition, there is tremendous value in that because if you don't establish routine, if you don't establish discipline, if, if you don't establish tradition, then it's so easy to just get caught up with the flavor of the week and, and just grab it and run with it. And Correct. so, you know, I, as a parent of a five and a six-year-old right now, I am very much thinking about, well, what are the parts of religion that, you know, probably got our society in a not so great place? Cause that's a truth as well. And yes. what are the parts that we can continue to embrace and love and evolve and develop? But I think throwing it away, we're going to, we're going to lose a central, central part of what it means to be human. Um, and so I, I think you're, that's why you probably lit me up when you said that, because I can envision those moments, whether it's even Thanksgiving or Christmas or, or Easter or whatever it is, like the gatherings are really, really critical because those are the moments where you stop and you pause and you say, we're together, let's have a conversation. Even if it's about politics, even if it's about something you don't want to talk about, we need gatherings. COVID, need COVID, look, like I, I believe that we are not having this conversation if it's not for technology. This is beautiful that we can do this over Zoom. And if we don't have gathering places and we don't meet in person, we're going to miss what it, it's like to feel alive. And I'm off my soapbox, but but you can, oh, you I can riff. That, I, I, I'm getting chills now because I resonate with that. You know, 
that there are so many good things about some of the, the faith-based traditions. There are wonderful things about the modernist point of view and the economic and scientific progress that we've made and the eradication of hunger. You just look at the incredible miracle of vaccinations in the context of COVID. I mean, who would have thought they'd build this mRNA delivery mechanism that's saving millions of lives now? That Unbelievable. Be, Unbelievable. Right, Unbelievable. And then, you know, you've got social justice, you've got reform, you've got diversity, multiculturalism. All these things are very positive across the spectrum of worldview. The dark side of that or the pathological side of that is people go to the fundamental. They, they take something as the eternal truth. And then two years later, there's a scientific breakthrough who proves it false. We've gone away from the, the beauty of the simple community of being human. Because when what happens when you lose a loved one or you're in a you're in a flood together? You know, there was a giant tsunami a few years back. Um, one of my um, one of my my sister-in-law's brothers was caught in that and was literally hanging on, saved him and his wife's life. They were literally hanging on to a, like a hut and they were as the people were being dragged out and they lived to tell the tale. The, the enormity of that experience grounds you. And there's so many of us that have had experiences like that, right? A loved one dies or somebody has a mental illness or you have somebody close to you commit suicide or the enormity of the challenges of humanity are given. And we, we need to recognize those. Life is messy. But what we put meaning to is what creates problems. And so if we just get back to humanity and be in communication and celebrate the simplicity of you and I having a conversation and connecting, we may not agree on everything. Um, and if we agree, if we disagree, let's let's agree to be civil about it. What's happened to common civility and interacting as human beings just trying to survive in the world? Big, 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 big thing for us to to, to recognize and get back to, in my view. hundred uh, percent. As I as I think about your bio and and where you've been and and the work that you've done in your career. The word service just is popping out. You know, you, you worked uh, for a professional service firm for 14 years, focused on organizational development, consulting, people assessment, executive search. You've been involved in services. YPO is yeah. is is a service. It's it's a nonprofit, which is also an interesting element to it, given how many for-profit CEOs I'm sure there are. There are also nonprofit CEOs, but a lot of for-profit CEOs. Um, and then what you're doing today with Capital 54 and how you're trying to cultivate um, bringing together service leaders and, and communities, uh, Lumini, which you're building. I mean, there is this draw that you have to the service industry. Yes. Why is that? Why is it that you've always been in that space? Is it just coincidence? It's just where you ended up? Or was there something intentional that occurred that led uh, you in that very direction? Intentional. You know, I didn't start out that way, but I will give credit to EO to begin with and then to YPO because I have seen how people just putting themselves behind and in service to others, extraordinary, unrecognizable things happen. You know, I'll give you an example in YPO's context. We have something called Member to Member Exchange, M2MX. And it's a confidential platform that if a member has a business need or a family issue or a health issue, they can just literally go out there. There's a team that basically takes that request and literally fires it out into the ether of members and their community and says, we need help. It is miraculous what happens. Like the people that provide the health component to that is a company called Health Network Foundation. Their work goes unknown, unsung, unseen. But what they do is they literally help 
you know, somebody's being diagnosed with, you know, stage three liver cancer, they get them to the best doctors with all of them, their might that they can. They don't ask for a dime. They literally save lives. They do over like 3000 requests a year. It's, a, it's one of those things that I got to see early on, 30 years ago, I got to see how somebody selflessly helping somebody else had a dramatic impact in their life. And I've seen it thousands of times, Brian, over the last 30 years. And so it's become, I think I drank the Kool-Aid when I was able to give back by helping somebody without expectation of anything in return. That's a, that's a fundamental faith-based philosophy, by the way. You look at, you know, you look at any faith-based leader worth their salt. They're going to put themselves second. They're going to put themselves at service of someone else. And I don't mean to be, you know, prescriptive in this regard, or I'm not better than anybody else. But I've seen people that literally have stepped up. And it surprised me sometimes that people I had an impression about that weren't helpers and they appeared selfish to me. When the rubber hit the road, they just got on the phone and said, hey, this is what I'm going to do for you. And they make the call and they get you that kind of lifeline. It's freaking unbelievable. Excuse the expression. So this is going to end in a question, but you're just going to have to bear with me on, on yes. the first part of it. So to me, the best advice I've ever received is to not give advice without permission. And since people are listening to this on a podcast, hopefully I have their permission to give the next piece of advice that I think has been really helpful for me and, and Sean, are, are you willing for me to give you like my, my favorite piece of advice? Please, please, Brian. So I have your okay. permission. Right. So I worked with a client once and she saw, she said to me, Brian, you have to take care of your marriage first and the kids second. And I didn't have kids at the time. Now that I have kids, I understood what she was saying. However, I've amended her, her advice to say, you have to take care of yourself first then you have to take care of your marriage. Then you have to take care of your kids. And that to me is the best advice that I could ever give anybody. And you have a thumbs up. So people aren't going to see you, but you gave a thumbs up. I think that's huge. Massively so with, important. So with that in mind, here's my question to you. Yes, sir. As you are thinking about being in service to others as a leader and being selfless without any expectations back, you have been running a massive organization like YPO. Yeah. You have started uh, your own uh, businesses. You've got, I think, three different buckets that you're really focused on right now and growing and you're splitting your time. And I know Lumini is taking a lot of your time and we're definitely going to spend some time talking about Lumini. But what is it that you do to make sure that you're good? What are you doing to make sure that you're not pouring from an empty cup and you're able to serve other people? Talk about what you do to make sure that, that you're doing well. Well, your listeners don't see this, but I've got my, I've got a big YPO cup here. It's my smoothie. So every morning, and, and I, so diet is really critical to mental health and exercise. Those are fundamentals in order to be prepared for every day because you don't know what's going to be thrown at you. There have been times in my life where I have not taken care of my health. I've overeaten. I've, drink, I've been drinking too much or whatever the case may be. But you know, I'm now, I'm in a habit and habits are hard to do, but I've got this amazing habit and my wife and I are co-creators and partners in it. Every morning we wake up, I make a celery juice, we drink a glass of lemon juice, I make smoothies for us and I have my smoothie at lunch and it's all healthy and it's all good. And yes, we have balance, we don't punish ourselves and we do cheat nights. And But fundamentally, diet and what you put in your mouth is absolutely going to have an impact 
on how you function in life. It, it is just scientifically proven. And I'm very fastidious about that. Um, and I don't go overboard about uh, with it, but I'm fastidious. Exercise, I, I go up and down, but the, when I'm exercising, you know, I, I, the last 10 days I'm on a roll every, every morning, I'm out there in the dark with a flashlight, you know, 17, 18 miles a minute, and I do two or three miles, phenomenal. And if you could do that at least two or three times a week again, I'm gonna be a little prescriptive, but get out there, get the heart rate up, and you don't have to be in a gym, you don't have to spend money, you could just go for a walk. What time uh, of day? What time of day are you waking up? I am a morning person, so I like to go out early. I like to I like to be out at you know six six thirty, um, and you know that's me. That's my sort of biorhythm. At night, I'm chilled. I've had a busy day. I just want to relax. And then, by the way, for me, work is my. I get. I don't see myself retiring. Like I'm. I'm actually thinking on on on. I've I've set up Lumini. I've I've helped set up uh, Collective Capital. I'm actually, I'm actually now that's, that's rocking and rolling. I'm now, what's the next thing that Sean's going to do? Where, where can I play now in the next 10 years? I think there's at least one or two big game ideas and opportunities that I could dive into. And what I'm you, very what you, serious about that. What do you think those are? And, and then we'll, we'll circle back to Capital Collective and Lumini. So what are you I excited like about? What, what are you excited I, about? I love your space. I love the mentoring coaching because i think i've seen the power of the peer group it's a proven model coaching has become you know really interesting and mentoring has become really interesting because people are in need of this and they're in need of this connection whether it's small group whether it's one-on-one -on -one, i think there's scale opportunities to really leverage that worldwide by the way not just in we're very good at it in the united states and we kind of invented the the realm but I think there's a scale opportunity to really enable people to connect on a micro level together with a framework with something like that. I do think, you know, a lot of people are investing in moonshots. And then I read something else the other day. They called it some other shot, a long year shot or near term shot. Where can you help move the needle through your leverage and your relationships? Maybe it's, it's medical um, uh, breakthroughs. Um, maybe it's it's really solving, not maybe, really solving the water issue that's going to be a massive problem for us in the developing world, um, and it impacts everything, right? And then the ecology and the um, and and the health of the planet. I, that's not a game. Anybody that's a, I'm going to be go on a limb, probably get shot, but you cannot deny that polluting the planet has a massive impact on everything, every microorganism, every macroorganism, every human being, and the health and wellness. Of, we've, got, we've got to do something about that as a for, people. For the record, it's just insane that there are comments that are considered political, no matter how you, how you, sli how you slice it. Uh, but as I hear you talk, I'm hearing humanity. I'm hearing somebody who really cares about impact and influence. What's driven the, the first chapters of your business career? Is financial, like security, like what... What drove you to do the things that you did beforehand? Because I can hear, okay, now I feel like those are running. I'm, I'm good. I've got these businesses. Yeah. They're set up. Okay, I, I hear that. But, but what was driving you before? What, what got you here? Uh, you know, you said it earlier, and I think I alluded to it. It's, I, I, for me, it's, being, it's, it's stimulating people to have an impact in the world through entrepreneurship. And, and you, can be a, you can be a social 
socially conscious entrepreneur and make massive contributions. That's a whole evolutionary dimension that's coming and it's coming quickly because people that really, young people today, millennials, I hear it all the time and I see it, they want to work for a business with a purpose. They don't want to just work for the man or work for the dollar or be a number or be treated like a pawn. Why, when you have so much choice today, you could go into public service today and just go and do Teach America around the world. Or you could, you know, you could go into missionary work, or you could literally, literally today, you could design your future. And that's what I love is how do we help people design their ideal future out of what they really feel they can contribute? So I get a high, I get a kick out of that. And by the way, I I don't think this is new. I think, and I, look, I'm I'm 37, so I guess I'm technically a millennial, but I think every human has always craved autonomy. Uh, and yes. every, like there's something called self-determination theory, which the three elements of self-determination theory are, am I competent? Do I have autonomy? And do I have relatedness, which is a silly word, but it essentially means do I have relationships and am I part of something bigger than myself? I don't think that's generational. I think it's human. I that's think, right. I think now we're seeing it in a pandemic with people quitting and, and moving locations we're just creating more opportunities for people to have autonomy and to choose what they want to do with their career. And when they're choosing their career, they're saying, Hey, this is actually the other stuff I value. Whereas maybe 30 years ago, a, there wasn't the same security or 50, yeah. I should even go back 40 years ago, 50 years. They didn't have the security. Also people are going to war. It's just different generationally, but I don't think that that generation was any different as far as how the individual thought the ecosystem and environment might've been different. It was certainly different where you grew up. So I think an environment and ecosystem provides opportunities for people to do the thing that they're going to do. But I don't think humans are that different than they were 50 years ago or 70 years ago, or, hundreds or years several ago. thousand years ago. Yeah. We're not they're that not. different. We're not. not that different. And, and we, if you, if you look at all the stats, we're in the best shape that we've ever been um, for sure. as as a, as a race, right? Now we've got I, to preserve that. <laughs> I know when we say things are worse now than they've ever been, it's it's a lie. It's just, there's no, there's no truth to it. So let's go to some truths as far as the businesses you're involved with. And I know you said, hey, they're, they're actually doing pretty well without me. And I'm actually working to scale these things so that they don't need me. And I'm going to bring in great wow. people. Um, so talk about Collective 54 and Capital 54, just so people know what they're about. Yeah, and I'd so love to- Capital, I, yeah, Capital go ahead. Is the family office of Greg Alexander. He, he, he has been very successful. So he's deploying his capital and I'm helping him with selecting strategic investments. My role is to really build the, the, the teams that are, going, that are going to build out these engines. So think of that as just literally a hold code and Greg will continue developing that and do, its, do, do his thing with it. Very, very defined. Collective 54 is a portfolio investment of capital. And it's a peer group, but it's very niche. It's focused on founders of boutique professional services firms. Greg wrote an incredible book called The Boutique, giving him a plug if you don't mind. And, um, you know, it's designed to think of it as an accelerator for those founders who truly want to scale their business and create enterprise value so that they can do whatever they want to do. There's no, we're not prescribing an end game. What we're saying is there are ways to, to structure your business, to maximize its ability to provide a great service, usually a consulting or fee-based service, um, you know, to, to treat your people well, to put in the structures and the systems 
and to really have it be the best it can be. I guess that's that's what Collective does. It's got over 208 founders since um, really we kicked off in April last year. It's tracking at over $2 million. It's, it's going to be a great, I think that's going to be a fabulous success. Lumini is the second investment. And that's built around Jackie Ludwig, who's a dear friend of mine. Um, I recruited Jackie as my executive assistant at YPO. Um, and Jackie and I have been together for eight years. And she changed my life. She's an extraordinary human being. She is one of the most gifted organizers that I have ever met. I mean, her ability to organize and take what I would say are, are the things that I dislike the most, administration, coordination. I mean, she was just amazing. And so we had this amazing run together. We developed a lot of methodologies. And so we've taken all of that learning, that eight years, and we packaged it into another membership community where we're focused on both the, the executive and their EA. So it's a partnership model. 80% of the, of the work, the services are going to support the EA, but the executive has to be bought in 100%. They have to spend 20% of their time engaging with the tools, methodologies, and learnings that we're teaching the EA. So that's up and running. You know, we're out of the gate. We started at the beginning of the year. We built a nice little team, and Jackie's rocking and rolling. Uh, in fact, uh, Thursday night, we've got our first in-person, which I'm really looking forward to. We've got 20 EAs and some CEOs, and we're going to do some a panel discussion. But that business is now launched, and it's, it's, it's on its way. My role was always not to go in and be, be in the business. My role, I'm in for a certain period of time, structure, move out. And then, you know, now I'm looking, you know, okay, what is, what is next? Whether it's within the confines of capital and, and collective and Lumini, or is my next challenge now, you know, going to be um, helping and accelerating, as, as I've discussed with you, areas that I'm interested in. And I have to be careful because I can't wear too many hats. I've got to, I'm kind of, I like to go one or two things at a time, not five at a time. Why move on? Why not? Like Lumini sounds exciting. Why not just be like, you know what? Let's just build this thing and, and be well, involved. Well, because it's done, right? I mean, my value now, I'll always be involved and I'll always be a cheerleader and a mentor. But my value is in having a broader a broader impact. That's That's been sort of the arc of my career is, you know, I kind of, I'm in the sevens. Seven is a magic number, I think. Certainly in my life, it's been sort of seven, 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 seven. You know, I'm in the midst of sort of maybe the early part of the next seven. Um, so we'll see, you know, listen, I like to live in the present. I like to live in the moment. Yes, I future plan. Try not to look back at all. There's nothing I can do, nothing any of us can do about what happened three minutes ago. Can't take back what I just said, right? Um, you could eradicate it. You could, you know, iron it out, delete it. But Technology can allow us to do it. But, but yeah, I hear yeah. what you're saying. Look, Look, and, and something that I, I want to share, Collective 54 is something I'm looking into for me. I'm at a point in my career where I'm not sure if I want to scale. And we talked about this and I have a phone call with your people, I think in the next week or two. And, and so I, I, I get it because I think a lot of people that love what they're doing and love to service, just I don't know what I'm going to want to do in 10 years. And so it's something that I'm thinking about now and, and exploring. Uh, and then on the Lumini front, I, I'm actually curious to get your thoughts on this. I see a lot of postings now for chief of staff. And, yes. and so I'd love to know how you think about the distinction between a chief of staff compared to an executive assistant. Yeah. 
you know, a lot of executive assistants, the, the great ones today, of which there are many, almost do wear that chief of staff hat. With the chief of staff, when an, exec, when an EA executive assistant starts to become very strategic and they, they start to sit in on senior leadership team meetings, they start coordinating other administrative professionals within the organization. They become very adept at being the eyes and ears of the executive team and they, their opinion is valued. And they have a perspective that the executive ranks don't have because they typically are accepted and they integrate throughout the organization. That's probably the time where an organization you know, could elevate potentially or structure a chief of staff role, typically is in bigger organizations. The military is a prime example where you have a chief of staff or adjutant of a general, they need, it's like herding cats, right? They're the ones that are bringing the other senior people together. They're following up on, you know, commitments and, and deliverables, et cetera. They're not just doing five or six purely administrative type functions. They truly are part and parcel of the strategy execution working on the business side. That's the, the, the big distinction between the chief of staff and an executive assistant. I want to go to a framework that I've been playing with. I've worked with a lot of CEOs. I continue to work with a lot of CEOs. You were the president of presidents, right? And, yes. and so you had seven years at YPO working with, for those that don't know, we had Scott Mordell on here. Um, YPO, there are thresholds, a certain amount of money your company has to earn, their revenue, there are size of your business. There are often these thresholds in order to be in it. So a lot of those presidents, they have to be under 50 years old when they enter. I actually think it's 45 when they actually yeah. get in, but they can stay in it until they're 50. Yeah. Um, so I've been playing with this concept because when I work with CEOs, I find that there are three massive factors in determining their success. One is that they, they, they have to have great attention to detail. Right. And attention to detail is not the sexiest thing, but attention to detail, we talk about discipline, what you're eating, what you're drinking, you know, do you get back to people? Do you follow through contracts? I mean, attention to detail is highly underrated and that's where a lot of mistakes can happen when there is not an attention to detail. So that's number one. Number two is strategy. And I, I, underneath strategy for me is, are they innovative? Are they creative? Are they a visionary? Are they able to see into the future. So let's just put that in a strategy strategy yeah. bucket. And then the third one is to me like the emotional intelligence, managing people. Are they able to connect with human beings? I have found that it's very hard to find a CEO or a human being at any level who has great attention to detail, great strategy, and great emotional intelligence. Am I, am I missing something in that? No, no, I think uh, I'm sure there are a couple of unicorns. Um, I mean, I think that is the, the greatest um, talent that I've seen in executives is being aware of their weaknesses, their strengths and weaknesses, and making sure that those weaknesses are shown up. Because if you're reliant on leadership for, on, a, on a weakness, it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back to haunt you. And all of us have them. You know, that's the, that's the great reality. And I love that you said that because I think if you have that, and let's put that in the emotional intelligence bucket, if you're aware of your weaknesses, then I think you can be a really good CEO with two of those three. So if yeah. your attention to detail isn't great, 
you can hire a great COO or a great CFO who can help you with the attention to detail. If your strategy isn't great, but your attention to detail and emotional intelligence is there, then maybe you bring someone else in who can be a dreamer and can help you. But to your point, those unicorns that have all three of those, it is amazing when you see a CEO who has great attention to detail, amazing vision, creativity, and then their people skills are also elite. Um, so it's something I've been playing with because I, I've seen it. I've seen the yeah. unicorn. And yeah. and then I know like for me, I'm not those three things. And I have the Dude. ability. My attention to detail is not where it needs to be. That's I think cool. I have the strategy. I think I have the people skills. That's what I get paid for. Um, yeah. But the attention to detail isn't there. So you raised your hand and said the attention to detail is not your biggest strength. Yeah. How have you managed that uh, throughout your years? Well, listen, I mean, in a CEO or president or any C-suite role, it is table stakes. You've got to be able to process, but you don't have to be responsible for developing and doing. So you learn, if you can get to a very good functional level and you know what details required to make, you know, if, if you're analyzing a particular decision, you've got to have all the facts and the data. Without data, you can't survive you know, in business. You've got to have the facts at your fingertips. But a lot of CEOs, a lot of CEOs that don't make it to scale their businesses, they get overly indexed on detail. And that's where they spend their time. They're under-indexed on emotional intelligence and they can't keep people because people leave if you don't display emotional intelligence, if you can't be compassionate, if you can't sit and have the patience to have a conversation. A lot of detailed people I know have very low patience for people that, you know, are non-detail oriented. I mean, it's just, that's a reality that I find. Now, you know, you can also, you know, be overly inspiring and over-promise and under-deliver. That's not good. So those that learn, I think, and adapt, and this is where having a coach in the early stage of your life, you know, I had Dan Sullivan from Strategic Coach when I was a young man in Toronto, you know, who I spent sort of three years with. Now, a lot of his coaching was helping me drive my financial independence, but you know there was a lot of um, you know psychology and self-awareness and study built in. The the importance is understanding what your strengths and weaknesses are. Play to your strengths and make sh- darn sure that you've got really smart people or really smart people smarter than you in the areas that you have a weakness, and if you can hold that together under you know a vision and a really great mission the sum the 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 sum is always greater than the than the individual you know uh, pieces that's a great place for us to close you started off talking about south africa and and learning about teamwork and then you close with just saying hey it still is about the sum uh, rather than the individuals sean if people want to learn more about your businesses or about you where can they go ahead and do that I think LinkedIn is the best. Just Google Sean Magennis, S-E-A-N-M-A-G-E-N-N-I-S. LinkedIn is fantastic. Um, and then, you know, I would just, you know, have a request of your of your listeners. Um, you know, I, you said it really well. Take care of yourself first. Make sure that you're healthy, that you're safe, that you're well, you know, sorted and, and looked after. And then go and help somebody. Go and help you know, a neighbor, a friend, give something back to society in any way that you can. Um, And I promise you, it'll come back in so many unrecognizable ways that that I that I guarantee that that is a guarantee. 
Awesome. I'm on LinkedIn as well at Brian Levinson. Twitter's the other place I like to play at Brian Levinson. And you can listen to all these conversations, strongskills.co slash podcast. Sean, this has been a blast. Good to get to know you. At some point, we might break bread and and maybe ha- have, a, have, a, have a glass of wine. Um, great to meet you. Great to get to know your story a little oh, bit. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode jam. I have seen how people just putting themselves behind and in service to others, extraordinary, unrecognizable things happen. You know, I'll give you an example in YPO's context. We have something called member-to-member exchange, M2MX. And it's a confidential platform that if a member has a business need or a family issue or a health issue, they can just literally go out there. There's a team that basically takes that request and literally fires it out into the ether of members and their community and says, we need help. It is miraculous what happened.